be turning tonight to the book of Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Let me tell you before I get started, I had a little girl today out of uh, um, Sarah Garrison's class, third grade, uh, wanted to come up and talk to me about getting saved. And uh, it is such a delight to have an opportunity to talk to somebody that wants to be saved and wants to know it. And what a joy it is to share with her some of the things that I've learned over the years. And one of those things is, the Lord said, He that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. And so when you've got a little child that wants to get saved, and you've got a Savior up here that invested everything that he is as a creator God to save her, the joy is explaining to her that it's impossible not to get saved. Because when you desperately want to be saved... And the Savior desperately wants to save you. It has to happen. And, and this little child uh, seemed to grasp that understanding. And when she left the office, uh, I think that she uh, had something of the confidence that the Lord wants all of his children to have. And the same thing is true when it comes to a meeting like this. When you have people who desire to come to church and have a desire to understand what God has written in this precious book, it is impossible to leave here without a blessing because the Savior has invested so much in giving us this book. And he wants us to understand his word. And so here we are tonight. We're going to study a passage that I, I trust is going to be a blessing to you. It has been to me, just studying it. I've wanted to bring this message for really several months. I had it prepared uh, some time ago, and it just didn't work out with different things that was going on to bring it at the time. It was other things. And so I'd like for you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30. And we're going to be studying uh, a riddle. It's actually the riddle of life by Agra. But let's begin reading at verse 18. There be three things which are too wonderful for me. Yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air. The way of a serpent upon a rock. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. And the way of a man with a maid. And then verse 20, such is the way of the adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, 
I have done no wickedness. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us in these next few moments to understand these things that are wonderful. They're too wonderful for us to really understand apart from you. But we thank you for your presence because it's your desire for us to understand it or you would not have written it. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'd like for you to read with me the first six verses of this chapter because I think it prepares our minds for what the message is that we're going to focus on, which is going to be verses 18 through 20. But let's read beginning at verse 1. The words of Agur, the son of Jakey, even the prophecy... Now, it's very important to pay attention to every word because right now, even though we don't know a lot about this mysterious personality, Agur, um, he's, he's an extremely important person and he was to Solomon because in Solomon's acquaintance with this man, he was so impressed with the wisdom the Lord had given him he was included here in the volume of God's inspired scripture. And we're told right up front that what he had to say was prophetic. In other words, it was insight into the future. Something that the natural man cannot know for the simple reason that we do not know what a day is going to bring, bring forth. We do not. That's a natural state of man. We do not know the future. There's only one that knows the future, and that is God. And he, he, he tells us what it is, as we've noted many times, with rigid accuracy. He's never wrong about his prophecy concerning the future. It goes on to say in verse 1, The man spake unto Athiel, even unto Athiel and Eucal, Surely I am more brutish than any man. Now, he's giving us some insight into his, his uh, perception of himself. And he says, Surely I am more brutish than any man. What does he mean by that? Well, if you look up the word brutish, you'll find out that it means uncivilized. It means stupid. It means foolish. And what he's doing is he's describing to us what we're really like apart from God. We're uncivilized. We don't know how to live. We're out here groping in the dark thinking that we know something about life when the truth is, no, we don't. But every man by nature is determined that he's going to live it according to his own understanding. Big mistake. And so, Agur is saying here, surely I am more brutish than any man. I'm more uncivilized than any man I've ever known. And have not the understanding of a man. That's pretty ignorant. 
to not have even the understanding of a man. He must have been at some point in his life very frustrated with the fact that he just didn't really have a life with much meaning and much purpose. And there are a lot of people like that. But it doesn't have to be that way. But then he begins to tell us some things that are amazing. It should be an encouragement to us. He says, I neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. In other words, you can't just go out here and start reading and studying and learn wisdom and knowledge of the holy. He begins to explain to us why. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended, that is, into the deep, to know what is beyond the grave and death? Who knows those things? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? And then he tells us something that's precious. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Folks, we've just read something that is precious because it really describes the condition and the state of every person born into the world. We don't know anything. We don't know how to live life. Life is just a frustration. We never know what tomorrow is going to bring. It may bring a totally unexpected result. An unexpected end. We're not in control of anything. We try to be, but we're just failures at it. And so with that, let's go to the 18th verse. And let's examine what the Lord has to say to us here. Because you see, uh, Agur is telling us in the first six verses that wisdom and understanding is available to us. But we have to know where to go to get it. It comes only from God. You can't get it anywhere else. You can't get it in the schools. You can't get it by going out into the woods and trying to philosophize like Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle and come up with the answers so that you can portray yourself as a man of wisdom. You cannot do that. It comes only from God. And it's so perfect. Agur says, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Don't mess with the word of God. God knows what he's saying. And he's inspired his word. And when we gather into a place like this, if we come to him with a desire 
to understand what he's saying. It is impossible to leave here without the blessing that the Lord wants to give us in the form of, of understanding. And so in verse 18, Agar says this, There be three things which are too wonderful for me. Three things that are too wonderful for me. What does he mean by wonderful? Well, if you look the word up, here's what you're going to find. Wonderful means too high. The things of God are too high for us to know. Another meaning that you find in Strong's Concordance is hard. It's hard. The Apostle Peter said that of some of Paul's writings, that they're hard to be understood. Well, maybe that's by design on the part of God because He wants us to study. He wants us to really want to know or we're not going to know. And that's true in this meeting tonight. A person that has no real desire to know is going to leave here with no more than you came in with. But a person that has a desire and wants to know these wonderful things, this revelation that from God's perspective is wonderful, it is, because it's about Him. And His desire to teach us how to live this life. As a matter of fact, in verses 18 through 20, you find the two words, the way, mentioned five different times. Five different ways. The way, the way, the way, the way. And he says it five times. Well, that teaches us something right there. Because the truth is, we're down here in this world somewhat lost. We don't know the way. But Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you want to know the way, then you have, going to have, you're going to have to come, come to me to get on the right course, headed the right direction. And so five different times he talks about the way, the way of the eagle, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a, with a maid. And then in verse 20, we've got something that's a bit strange, but it's not when you really ponder what he's saying. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I've done no wickedness. And so the Lord is wanting us to think about the way as he's presenting it in all of these different situations. Well, the truth is, um, these things that are said in these verses right here span the entire course of a person's life. And what is essential 
in order to be delivered from being brutish or uncivilized. Agar, in humility, is saying, I'm, I'm more brutish than any man. Uh, I'm more uncivilized than anybody I've ever known. He's confessing the fact that he is not capable within himself to know the way. When you realize that, and simultaneously realize someone who does know the way, you're going to desire to get with him. And then he will reveal it to you. And that's how we're to understand this passage. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Why does he say that? Too wonderful for me. Well, these are things that cannot be known by man by nature. That's what he's saying. They're too wonderful for me. Yea, four things which I know not. So he's making it very clear that he's fixing to discuss some things or reveal some things that the natural man cannot know. They're beyond him because they're too high. They're too hard. They're too hard for a person to, to know. And yet, they're marvelous things. And so when you look this word wonderful up, you will find out that one of the definitions of the term wonderful is the word marvelous. And you see, from God's perspective, that's how he sees it. That's how he sees this passage right here, as being marvelous information. Boy, I'm going to tell you something. When we come and gather in this church and we study this book, the God of heaven loves us so much and he wants to reveal to us marvelous things so that we can be delivered from being uncivilized, stupid. That's one of the meanings of the word brutish, stupid, foolish. People that do not know the Lord live a life of foolishness and it's, it's tragic. I know, I lived that way for 26 years on this planet. An uncivilized, foolish person. Living for myself, trying to get a life because I thought I was capable of it. And the truth was, no, I wasn't. And that's when the Lord showed up. When I came to the end of myself. And he turned me toward this book and began to show me things that I'd never known. Wonderful things. Things too high that I could never know on my own by reading the philosophy books. You have to come to the scriptures to get this understanding. Verse 19 the first thing he talks about is the way of the eagle. The way of the eagle. The Lord wants us to think about that. The way of the eagle. Why? 
Well, if you study the scriptures, here's what you're going to learn. The eagle is a symbol of Jesus Christ. We learn that in Ezekiel chapter 1. We see it also in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 7. The eagle is an earthly symbol that represents, because of the nature of the eagle and how God has created that bird, it communicates to us something about the person of Christ. And that's what the Lord wants us to think about. It's also a bird that soars into heavens. Between heaven and earth, we have this eagle, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator, the mediator who has come down to this world to teach us the truth. But if you'll notice, and I'm sure that you see it from time to time, you'll see various birds with the large wings like an eagle soaring in the air. <clears throat> and they'll hold their wings out and they don't even flap them a lot of times. They're just up there, just hanging. And they're soaring in the air. Why does the Lord bring this out? Well, it's because when you study the Scriptures, the Lord shows you things in different places that you will later see the connectivity of these things and it will begin to come together and make sense. And so if you turn to, and I don't want you to do this, we don't have time to study this exhaustively, but in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 8, the Lord Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was sort of blown away by what the Lord had said concerning his need to be born again. And Nicodemus had no idea what he was even talking about. And the Lord explained it to him this way. It's a mystery. It's too wonderful, really, for you to understand. It's like the wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and you hear the sound thereof, but know not whence it cometh or whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit of God. And so the Lord is putting together a thought there. The wind and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you'll think about it, it's not difficult to understand why the Lord is now connecting the eagle and the wind. Because there's a oneness between the eagle and the wind. It's such a oneness, the eagle doesn't even operate. He can't even fly without the wind. And it gives us insight into the wonder concerning Jesus Christ and the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and the oneness between Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Well, we learn in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You see the oneness? Jesus Christ said, I and the Father are one. 
As a matter of fact, there's a oneness between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Lord is teaching Nicodemus something about the oneness between him and the Holy Spirit as symbolized by the wind. And so the eagle is a, is a symbol of Christ. The wind is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And up there in the heavens, they're working together as one. And that's instructive. It's instructive for you and me. Because you see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate example to us of how life is to be lived. We're to walk in the Spirit every day. We're to walk in the Spirit. We're to pray without ceasing. We cannot live apart from the illuminating capability of the Holy Spirit to our lives. You learn that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can't even understand this book apart from the Holy Spirit. Agar learned that. We as the Lord's children have learned that too. We know what it's like to read a passage and not be able to understand a thing in the world about what's being said. And we begin to pray about it. We begin to read books about it by others that teach God's Word. We come to church and we hear the, the pastor teach the Word of God. And all of a sudden one day it comes together and it begins to make sense to us. And that's what's going on right here. So the eagle is the mediator between heaven and earth, illustrating the need for oneness on our part as it is with him. We need to look to the Lord and the guidance of his Holy Spirit to understand this book. It's kind of interesting when you read Matthew chapter 4, the Lord Jesus had just been baptized and He was led of the Spirit, the Scripture tells us, into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. And three times Satan was defeated by this little phrase, It is written. It is written. It is written. Folks, that's how we defeat the principalities and powers. This is how we become knowledgeable of the strategy of Satan and how to be an overcomer in this world for the Lord's glory. It's by studying this book. It's by coming to a meeting like this with a desire to really understand it and what it's saying because when we've got that desire it is impossible for us to leave here without an understanding like the little girl she desperately wanted to be saved she had a desire to know that she was saved the Lord desires more than we could ever know that she be saved and when those two desires come together, it is impossible for it not to happen. Absolutely impossible.
Well, there are probably other things that can be said about that, but let's go to the next one. We're running out of time. <clears throat> the way of a serpent upon a rock. Boy, that's mysterious, isn't it? The way of a serpent upon a rock. How in the world can a person make sense out of a statement like that? How's that going to help us in life? Well, I think we can see. Let's think about it. The serpent, <clears throat> all throughout Scripture, is a reference to Satan. And all throughout Scripture, the rock is symbolic of Jesus Christ. And so you've got a serpent upon a rock. But what is the Lord telling us by this? He's basically telling us that there's the appearance that the serpent is on top of Christ, defeating him. He's on top of him. We usually think of the victor as being the one that's on top, but that's not the way it's presented here. I want to read you a verse that's been a special blessing to me. I, I pull out the Bible every once in a while and I just refresh my myself by reading it. It's Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 where the Lord Jesus is dealing with his disciples over his identity. His identity. And he's asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? And you know the passage. Peter finally answered and said, Thou art the Son of the living God. And uh, the Lord said to him, He said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And then he went on to say, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And so here we're reading where Agar is, Agar is talking about a serpent upon a rock. And we know that the serpent is Satan, and we know that the rock, in many different places in Scripture, is a picture of Jesus Christ. And so what is he trying to tell us here? Well, the one thing that we learn as we study the Bible is the power of Jesus Christ. And it's impossible for Satan to defeat the Creator God. That is impossible. But there's often the appearance that that's exactly what's happening. And I think it's one of the great discouragements discouragements that we are facing as the Lord's people today. We watch the news and it seems like every way we turn the Democrats are winning, winning, winning. The serpent on the rock. Here we are the Christians that understand the rock is Jesus Christ and it just seems like day after day we're defeated, we're defeated, we're defeated. But are we? Well, Agar understood the truth. 
And this is prophetic. Agar was a prophet. And he's revealing to us that there is going to be in life the appearance that the wicked prosper. That they're going to receive their expected end. But that is absolutely not true. It is not true. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 73. It's a a passage that is a particular blessing to me. Because it speaks to our time right now. Look at Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, that's, that's how I feel a lot of times when I watch the news. I, it just seems like that these wicked people are, are the ones that are prospering. Verse 12, if you look down at it, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. But then you come to verse 17. And this is the, the turning point. This is the agor experience. This is what the brutish can be delivered from their lack of understanding by. It's this method right here, verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. It's when you come into the church and you study the scriptures, you begin to understand the serpent on the rock. He's not winning. He's not on top. Truth is, that rock is going to bruise his head. And Jesus Christ is the victor. And that's exactly how we're to understand this. There is the appearance that we're losing. There is the appearance that the wicked prosper. But no, they don't. No, they don't. And neither will we if we become discouraged and lose sight of this amazing, wonderful truth. We win. I was reminded of Ephesians chapter 6. And I'll read it because we don't have a lot of time. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about, notice this, with truth. With truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, do right. Don't do wrong. Lean not upon your own understanding. We don't have any righteousness, but He does. In verse 15 it says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go out here with the gospel of peace. Leave the frustrations up to the, with the wicked. We're not to be frustrated. We're to have peace and we're to be those that try to make peace. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith. And the faith that he's talking about here is not ours. It's the faith that Jesus Christ has in himself to do and to fulfill his own word of prophecy. It's going to happen, folks. According to the word of the Lord, it is going to happen according to the word of the Lord. Do not add to His Word. Do not take away from His Word. It's going to happen according to His Word. And the serpent is not on the rock, not in the end of the story. Because the rock, Jesus Christ, cast Satan into hell. And that's exactly what is going to happen. And we need that faith, the faith that Jesus Christ has in Himself to tell us this is the future. This is what's going to happen. Pray for these people. Be pitiful toward these people. A lot of them are actually where we were just a few years ago. Just like them. Lost. Absolutely lost. But our attitude a lot of times is to look at the wicked and say, well, I don't want anything to do with them. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm not going to fellowship with them. That's not the way Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ went out here into the world and He was no respecter of persons. And He so loved the world and everybody in it. The lost, hell-deserving sinners. And He went into their homes and He ate with them. And He loved them. And He tried to teach them things too wonderful for any man to know unless the Lord reveals it to you and he's able to do that he says take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God this is a powerful thing the scriptures it's a powerful thing we ought to be those that are trying to give people Bibles and, and talking with them about this book and inviting them into our homes and going out to meet them in the highways and the byways and wherever we can get an ear. We need to be filling it up with what the Lord has shown us because, you know, somebody did that for you and me. Somebody did for me. Somebody cared about me when I was brutish, uncivilized, a 60s 
hippie. That's what I was. Lost. And somebody cared for me. And brought me the gospel and pointed me to Christ. And we need to be the same way. And we need to be those that pray. Well, enough there. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. Wow. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. The way. Here we're, we're being told the way again. The way of the ship in the midst of the sea. What does that have to do with... I mean, the world that we're living in, what? It's really a wonderful statement. It's really something that the Lord is fixing to, to tell us that's too high for us to really understand. It's, it's hard when you think about it. How does that relate to where we are right now? Well, if you start putting together what the Bible has to say about these things, all of a sudden it begins to make a little bit of sense. And so let's do that. As I was studying this, I thought about the way of the ship. And the first ship mentioned in the Bible is the ark. That's the ark. The ark of Noah. The other thing that I was thinking about was the midst of the sea. How, what does that mean? What is it the Lord is telling us about the sea? Well, we've been studying the book of the Revelation for several years in this church. <laughs> um, and there's something you learn in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15 that tells you what you need to know to see and understand this wonderful thought that's really too high for us to really understand. But God is a genius the way He writes. And the way He writes is He puts the meaning in various places. He sprinkles it out throughout the Scriptures. And if you look for it, it's like a puzzle and you start putting the pieces together and all of a sudden it begins to make sense. But in Revelation chapter 17, in verse 15, he defines for us the sea. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, the whore, are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. And so here you got a ship in the midst of this sea of opinions, of worldviews, of philosophies. And when we find ourselves in a world like that, where do we go for safety? And the answer is the ship. When you study the Bible, you learn that it's Christ. Christ is that ship. The ark was a type of Jesus Christ. And when everybody listened to 
Noah, which was only eight people, his family, they went into the ark and God shut the door. And all of those opinions and worldviews and philosophies were shut out. They were shut out. And the only thing Noah and his family had access to was the mind of Christ. And that's what we need, folks, tonight. We need the mind of Christ. We need to get into that ship. Christ. It's a type of the church. And we need to pay attention to what God has to say and turn away from the philosophies of this world and focus on this revelation that God has given us. But you know, when we're in that ship, we learn something else in Scripture. It's in the book of James. It has to do with a rudder. <clears throat> in James uh, chapter 3, it's called a helm. And if you look up the word helm, you're going to find out that that's what it refers to. It refers to the steering device or ultimately the rudder on a ship. Well, what does a rudder do? Well, it sets the course. It sets the course. And that's really what we need, isn't it? I mean, we're living in this world and we don't know which way to go. That has to do with wisdom and understanding. Making choices. Do we go this way or do we go that way? Which way do we go? We don't know. But if you study the Scriptures, you tell us how to get to where you want to go in this ship. In James chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, we read these words. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm or rudder. And so we're talking about this ship out in the midst of the sea driven of fierce winds. What are the fierce winds? Well, it's every wind of doctrine. When you keep studying the Bible, these things begin to pop up and you begin to understand how the Lord is using it. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He doesn't know which way to go. And out here in the world, you've got opinion, opinion, opinion. But who has the truth and the evidence for it? Well, it's the pillar and ground of truth. It's the church. We have the answer. This is the way to go. And so then he begins to describe what causes a person to be brutish, uncivilized. He says, even so, the tongue is a little member like a rudder and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. A little rudder like the tongue. It's like a rudder on a ship. And the tongue is a fire, is a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. 
that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That is how Agur remembered himself as being. Untamed, uncivilized, brutish, living the life of a fool. That's the way everybody is that's lost. But we have the idea of a rudder which sets us on the right course. And in Proverbs it tells us that when it comes to man and his uncivilized nature, there's going to be a way that seemeth right to him. But the end thereof are the ways of death. But Agur has received a prophecy from God. And he's never wrong. And he's always going to set you on a course where you're going to have an expected end. You're going to arrive at that safe haven when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the message. Another thing you need is a captain. And in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, it tells us, For it became him... For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus Christ is referred to here as a captain. And he's the captain of this ship in the midst of the sea with fierce winds all around us. Folks, we're so safe. We're so safe. I'm reminded of those messages by Brother Charles uh, when the Apostle Paul was, you know, in that shipwreck experience over in the latter part of the book of Acts. And here he was absolutely confident because an angel of the Lord had told him that not one hair on anybody's head was going to be injured if they would just stay in the ship Stay in the ship. Jesus Christ is a captain in this ship. And he knows how to take us where we need to go. The way of a man with a maid, oh my word. Uh, this is, this is so, so amazing. Uh, the, the way of a man with a maid. I'm, I'm going to have to cut this short. Um, but I'll just give you a thing or two to think about. It won't take me about another hour to tell you thing or two to think about. It's the mystery of oneness between God and man. That's what this is. The way of a man with a maid. You see, this is a type of salvation. It's a type of God's love for His wife, which was Israel. You remember Jehovah saying in Jeremiah chapter 3, Return unto me, for I am married unto you. God loved Israel as a nation. It was His wife. 
And then we get into the New Testament. We have the church as the bride of Christ. And so marriage is a type, it's a symbol of salvation. It's a symbol of somebody who did not know her future husband, who discovers himself to her. She falls in love with him because of what she learns about him and decides that she wants to be with him forever as one. She wants his mind. She wants his nature. She wants his character. And so there's this marriage. And it's really a reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden where Eve declared her independence from Adam, or really the Lord first, and then Adam. And uh, the truth is, she's the first adulterous woman mentioned in the Bible. And when Satan came to her and tempted her and said, Look, God lied to you. He's not who he said he is. He's a liar. And you shall not surely die. As a matter of fact, the very opposite is going to happen. You're going to be as wise as he is. I mean, you've got a mind. You've got a body. You've got energy. You can go out here and get a life. You can have your own paradise the way you want it to be. And Eve became the first adulterous woman and really the beginning of Babylonianism. Babylonianism didn't really begin at Babel. It began in the Garden of Eden. And what she did was adulterous. And she turned her affections toward the world and toward the things of self. And her husband, according to Paul's letter to Timothy, was not deceived being in the transgression. But the woman was deceived in the transgression. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Adam was a type of Jesus Christ. And he loved Eve so much that he was willing to identify with her sin and suffer death with her because of the love that he had. That's a picture of Christ. That's a picture of Christ's love for us. How he took our sin upon himself and he died in our place upon Calvary's cross that we might have salvation. And Adam was a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ who took the sin of his wife. He loved her so much. He just couldn't bear the thoughts of her going away and dying and so he died with her. He sure did. He took her sin upon himself. And Adam died because he did that. It, it prefigures Jesus Christ who knew no sin, but he took the sin, our sin, upon himself and died on Calvary's cross in our place that we might have the hope of life. That adulterous woman 
even though the scripture doesn't give us the details of how it all happened, I can tell you this, and I can assure you it did. There came a point when that adulterous woman who actually committed adultery against God first and had the mindset to do it concerning Adam. Adultery. But he loved her. And somewhere in the, the mix of all that took place, she began to realize her mistake. And her heart was broken. It was broken. And she repented. She had a contrite heart. So much so that Jesus Christ went and killed two sheep. Two sheep. One sheep, each being a picture of Jesus Christ, and took their coats and made coats of skins to cover their nakedness. And those coats of skins are pictures of the righteousness of God that He gives us as a free gift if we'll put our faith and trust in Him. And the Lord did that for Adam and Eve. A woman who had really technically committed adultery against the God of heaven. He loved her so much. Well, there's so much more I would love to be able to tell you, but we do not have the time. Maybe some later date I'll come back and we'll touch on this again because it's so rich with uh, truth that the Lord wants us to understand. Let's look to Him in prayer. Father, thank You for these, these moments we've had to study the Scriptures, things that are really too wonderful, things that we cannot possibly know apart from this book that You have given us. We thank You so much for the Scriptures. And I often personally think about what it would be like to be living in the world if we didn't have the Bible. We would just be left to ourselves and the opinions of the world and living the chaos of human opinion where there's no agreement, there's no course uh, of direction. And that's a tragic way for people to live. But we see it all around us. And I just pray that our hearts will be broken for the people that are caught up in this type of thing in the world and that we would reach out to them and try to bring them into us to teach them what you so graciously allowed us to eventually come to understand. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.